so is there going to be something going up with the bullet points, or? There is, great. Um, okay, so the first provocation, and again, this is content analysis based on your submitted questions, so our, you know, we're, we're just acting as conduits, is knowledge is currency, university is marketplace, and labor. And I just thought to include, um, as you read through these uh, bullet points, something that I read in the Amazon section of David's book, um, where he was responding to detractors, um, in which he said, capital dominates, it does not pervade. So maybe something to keep in mind as we go through these. First, um, institutions of learning are being run like businesses and you know where administrative heavy corporate models of education are being implemented, well, they have been implemented. So as an alternative to this failing model, how should institutions of inquiry conduct themselves? How should we evaluate them? And on a related note, austerity and cuts have effects on the university because the commonwealth has been stolen. So how do we get it back? Two, what counts as intellectual activity? For example, um, the cataclysmic levels of cooperation and decentralization of the first book, um, you know, like in the humanities, your first book like really matters a whole lot, um, sort of like a golden calf. Um, let me rephrase that. Uh, rather than being evaluated on your teaching, your public ser service, and others, you're really evaluated and given a job based on your publications, your first book. So what counts there? Do, does teaching and public service, etc., or collaborative work, does that not count as much and why not? Three, corporatization and monetization of universities and decentralized production coexist. There was a really fascinating question by a scientist um, who said, who pointed out the paradox of scientists use working with incredibly expensive tools, um, lots of, you know, millions of dollars at stake, but there still seems to be a level playing field between credentials and, I'm sorry, uncredentialed and distinguished faculty. And why is that? Like, how does this little utopia happen um, where, and, and the person answered it saying that because it's not commodified at that intellectual level, it, um, because everything is so expensive, it can't be commodified. So almost like a paradox um, in the sciences. Four, ownership of knowledge. Um, so from the commodification of art, which was one question, to handing scientific results over to, say, a pharmaceutical company, for whom and for what are we producing this knowledge? Five, with cheaper and cheaper academic labor come more and more uh, qualified, if not overqualified, candidates and a scarcity of jobs. So say if you're applying for a postdoc, not that I would know anything about this, and there's 900 people, all of them highly qualified up for the postdoc, you find yourself competing for two, basically two to four positions at a low-paying um, and prestigious institution. So what do we do? Do we strategically embrace our precarity, our mobility, um, the flexibility of the work? Do we get absorbed into you know, the tenure, the failing um, tenure process, even though we know it's a sinking ship? And what do we gain and lose in doing both? So with that, I turn it over to the facilitator. Start. They can raise their hand, and I'll come over to you with the microphone. If no one wants to start, then we'll just wait until someone does. And just let's keep an eye on the clock. It's ticking. Um, I just wanted to say that I really appreciate how this conference has been organized, this disconference has been organized, and I think the question of including um, voices that, um, I guess, including in professional settings 
voices that speak from the precariousness and the scarcity of academic jobs is something that I think is really important. So I'm, I'm, one of the things I've been really interested in is how can we create structures of conversation, um, of publication, um, in the, in, in academia that include graduate students, that include, um, people in non-tenure track positions. And I think thinking very, in, with institutional creativity, um, with or, organizational creativity is something that I think academia could do a lot more of, especially I, I'm in the humanities, when we talk about the crisis in the humanities. Um, and so I just really appreciate um, forms like this that bring together some of the innovations of social um, movement organizing with uh, academia. So it's kind of a thank you, and also I hope that we can brainstorm throughout the day about that. Oh, I missed the opinion last time. Right. Who was over here? I didn't see that. Oh, it's you. Um, so uh, I, I, I have like a, a, a lot of, a lot of kind of various thoughts and questions floating around. Um, I, I'm also a, a little unfair as to which of the, the which of the prompts, which of the questions we're responding to. Um, I am, but I guess in that, um, uh, one of the questions, one of the questions that I have, um, having uh, kind of spent a good amount of time um, within a fairly prestigious graduate school and kind of looking down the, the narrow scope um, toward the job market, um, and then kind of stepping out of that, um, I have I have been really curious as to how the question of academic labor um, kind of mirrors and reflects broader questions within the labor market. Um, one of the thing, one of the, the kind of deep ironies um, of of kind of graduate school education is that you occupy this really really privileged space, um, but at the same time, um, kind of more and more um, the, the the kind of difference between the framing of your space and the actual kind of quality of life concerns of your life are actually like much more, uh, like there's a real, there's a real tension between those two, um, insofar as like, you know, many graduate students live in poverty and will probably continue to live in poverty in spite of occupying like a very, very privileged place. Um, and, and I'm, and I'm kind of interested, like a, a lot of these questions kind of push towards looking at academic labor and I'm wondering if we can, um, kind of think about how academic labor relates to labor and jobs <laughs> and like how the job, like what is the job market and what does it mean to be jobless in this market? Um, um, and also we kind of par par like maybe parse the questions a little bit. Cause I feel like I'm going to stand so you can see me. Um, all right, can you hear me now? Uh, I, I publish a weekly that looks at what's happening at Harvard and MIT and other colleges and universities and in the surrounding community. And when I go to Harvard or MIT and they ask me who I am, I say I'm an independent scholar from Central Square. And it's taken years to get to that point where I could say I'm an independent scholar from Central Square. The, the possibility of cross-currents between the 
academic institutions that dominate this town, and the people who actually live in this town, all right, there's usually a separation. But there's a lot of resources in Central Square, in Kendall Square, in Porter Square, it, all over. And why I do what I do is because most people don't understand that a lot of the events at Harvard, MIT, the other colleges and institutions are open to the public. And you can see people that normally you only see on television and ask them a question and find out a little bit more about who they are. Credible resource. In the 90s, I did the same thing. And I actually made some money doing it by just asking for contributions. This iteration, 10, 15 years later, it's just for free and it's reputational economics. Okay. But, so think about the community as well as the a academy and think about different economic models, maybe free economic models as well as job economic models. Hi, um, my name is Peter Taylor. I'm a tenured professor, so at UMass Boston. So I um, I was at a forum uh, in New York on the weekend, and um, and some of the people were talking about William Morris, and William Morris was and E. P. Thompson talking about William Morris, but they were talking about the uh, education of socialists, which was a very broad term for them, and the importance of educating socialists. So I'm thinking about the education of anarchists, you know, what we do to educate them. And I'm just wondering how much the education of anarchists needs to have an element of complaining, because we very quickly complain about the system and about the possibilities and a lack of job possibilities, and how much that is a distraction from the energies that that uh, we tap into when we uh, get involved in mutual aid and free association and create the organizations, some of which uh, were just mentioned here. So there's a tension in here because I think if you blindly create your own little food co-op, but meanwhile uh, huge corporations are taking over whole foods, then you're ignoring what goes on in the world. But if you spend all your time reacting and complaining, then some people stop listening to you. And I do have to say that I almost left when I started hearing the first complaints. I said, I've got some other work to do. So there's a tension there, and I hope we play with that tension. I mean, I don't think you can educate anarchists and educate socialists being ignorant of the larger settings, but at the same time, we have to create our own future uh, in our own interactions now. I, I just want to say a quick thing that I, too, like to come to all the free events at Harvard. I teach at UMass Boston and MIT, but the reason they make those frees because they don't they only have the property and they pay no property taxes with their $30 billion endowment, for example, at Harvard. I'd rather that they pay the taxes and then we could figure out how to make these events open. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> I guess just in the interest of, of provocation, a, a, a lot of conversation about the, the academy. One of the things, the, the academy is a bit in crisis because a lot of the resources that used to be limited that the academy was responsible for uh, managing, like the ability to publish your work, the ability to get your name out, the ability to be to be credentialed and known, 
those of, those are eroding. That, that advantage to the university is, is going away. So when you talk about the, the problems uh, of the university, whether it's problems in the job market or otherwise, when you talk about the problems in the job market or otherwise, I think one of the questions you should be asking is, which scarce resources do you see being misallocated? Is it office space at Harvard? Um, that's okay, but that's not really a big problem. Is it the Harvard Endowment? Okay, maybe we should just get rid of the Harvard Endowment, or maybe we should ignore the Harvard Endowment. Or is it the ability to publish? Well, you can go out and publish, you can go out and do work. I think the big question is, you know, should you be compensated for doing that work? And if so, who should be paying for it and, and why? <laughs> I just want to say I, I realize that um, 90 seconds is kind of a harsh limit, but we're doing that because there are a lot of people here. I think people have a lot to say, and um, one thing that, that we're definitely committed to doing, though, is, is hearing everyone's thoughts on this, and so we, we encourage people to kind of go on the website, and there's an address there that those of you who registered send an email to, and you can send an email to that, and we will continually update the website with uh, you know further versions of your thoughts, or if you didn't get a chance to speak, we'll post that, too. My name is uh, Tom Hagen. I'm a, uh, an engineer uh, and, uh, and a capitalist. Uh, I've started a couple of companies, and I've uh, been thinking about uh, what has gotten us into the present situation. And uh, I've concluded that debt is the, is the name of the problem. It also happens to be the name of David's book, uh, which I bought. It's a thick book. I've skimmed it. I realize I'm going to have to read it in one sitting, and uh, that's going to take two days out of my life, so I, I haven't really read it yet. But um, uh, the point is that total debt in the United States is now $150,000 per capita. That's $600,000 for a family of four. For the last uh, 30 years, uh, labor has gotten a smaller and smaller percentage of the GDP. Their real wages have declined. Um, the increase in human productivity of which I've been an agent, as has Harvard and MIT, um, has gone all to the owners of capital, i.e. the people that collect the interest on that debt of $600,000 per family of four. So I would like to see that discussed. I would like to have answers to the question, did Harvard and MIT cause the global financial collapse? That's what I want to see discussed. No one's on stack, so just raise your hand. Yeah, um, one thing I, I'd be interested in what people are thinking about is, is the role of the university. Because when we talk about the role of the university, one reason I think it's so hard for us to talk about is it does so many different things. And universities have become institutions which are, uh, I mean, people even talked about the sort of university hospital city, where cities used to be involved around some sort of factory productive activity. Um, universities and hospitals in many cities of the U.S. are the main employer and the sort of key political entity. I imagine this is true here. Um, but you know, um, universities produce value in so many different ways on so many different levels. It's kind of hard to talk about it all at the same time. Um, and it's very clear that the way it's, that it's happened has it, shifted over time. One of the more amusing uh, 
Ivy's the role of university I've seen, um, was uh, C.B. McPherson once argued that universities actually play the sort of court jester role to the elite, that, you know, if you're uh, in power, you want to have somebody to tell you when you have a bad idea, um, but you don't want to be someone that everybody takes seriously. Um, so, you know, you get a hunchback war for somebody who speaks in a treasure's target and it seems ridiculous, and uh, it works. Um, and, you know, it seems increasingly like the people in charge don't want that guy anymore. Um, we seem to have a different role, although it's, it's, it's not clear entirely what it is, the ways that we're producing value. There seems to be a, a move to privatize our production in a way that hasn't happened before instead. Um, probably over Seconds, right. Um, so, so maybe we, uh, the, sh uh, the shifting ways that universities are producing value might be one thing. Um. Is the way to describe the state of academic labor and exploitation in this society right now to understand it as a market? In reading David's book, I, it makes me want to question that assumption. And even those of us who are fighting for, for change, whether for unions or other sorts of uh, reforms or more radical changes in and off, on and off uh, university campuses on the labor side, uh, is that the best? I mean, I worry that we reify that notion ourselves, right? I mean, there's plenty of demand for teachers at higher education, right? I mean, enrollments go up and up. There's plenty of need for teachers not only on university and college campuses, but obviously plenty of people who can't afford to go to college campuses. I mean, that's a whole other issue. But, but I mean, there are administrative decisions, right, being made to structure the way in which jobs uh, exist or don't exist. And, you know, they're going for the, the cheap adjunct labor. They're creating these non-tenure track positions. And so I think I just, I mean, I'm sure I'm, many people are familiar with this, but I'd like to just put that term up, you know, and then you hear David's response later, like, what does it mean to frame uh, the, you know, the economic situation we're in as, as a market versus other ways of framing it that might be a little more uh, politicized or, or clear. The other point is I just want to quickly, I know I have like probably five seconds left, is to say like why, you know, I, I write for the Boston Occupier and ed, help to edit it, and I would love to us to work towards a, an idea of what, you know, what does it mean to be an intellectual, intellectual activity, where the popularization of radical ideas and academic ideas counts, you know, and, and, and I'm not looking just to tenure committees to count it. We need to, I think, develop other institutions that will count it in other ways. But why shouldn't, you know, developing a great 90-second speech to give on the T to rally the T riders to stop the cuts, you know, why shouldn't that be considered a valid, aesthetic, theoretical, practical engagement? And what do we have to do to make that count? And if we have to radically change and under, you know, replace the structures that exist and so be it, but let's, you know, let's, I mean, so many of us live divided identities, right? Activist, academic. Let's not settle for that division. Let's totally find a way to synthesis so we can get beyond that division. And if that means sweeping away existing institutions, so be it. Okay, so, Katie, sorry, I'm not going to get back to you because we have one last person on stack and we're going to go a little bit over. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm a, a, a PhD candidate at Boston University. Um, I guess I'm kind of interested in, in how the division of labor works at universities and specifically how that's pitted um, PTLs against uh, tenured faculty and um, especially um, with grad students, many of whom um, are having trouble getting jobs anyway, so a lot of them want to add to their resumes by having teaching positions and so there's sort of like a competitive streak created between grad students um, and faculty and especially um, at private universities where 
Um, you can't officially unionize, and so a lot of them are, if they are, do exist as unions or solidarity uh, unions. Okay. 